All right, we're in Acts chapter 4 tonight. Acts chapter 4, we'll begin at verse 23. Who in their right mind would volunteer to be imprisoned in the Auschwitz concentration camp? Anyone with self-interest or interest in self-preservation would do whatever they could to avoid such a mission. Because from our perspective, knowing history and understanding what went on there, it would be a suicide mission. And yet, that's exactly what one man did. I learned about him only recently. His name was Witold Pilecki. He was a captain in the Polish cavalry. He became known as the Auschwitz Volunteer. He would spend two and a half years there before making a daring escape, bringing two other prisoners out with him. And he came and gave the first official report of exactly what the Nazis were doing there. He's recognized as the only known volunteer to be imprisoned in the concentration camp. Now, his courage and his sacrifice are dramatic and extraordinary. He's rightly remembered as a hero and, as one Polish leader said, an example of inexplicable goodness at a time of inexplicable evil. Now, in our hearts, we hear his story and we hope that we would have had the strength of character and boldness to do what he did if we were in his place knowing that despite the long odds, what looked to some like a suicide mission was actually an essential mission, a mission of mercy that someone had to take up. In Acts chapter 4, we find a scene not so different than the one I've described. The Christians of Jerusalem realize that the governments around them have declared war on God and on his people. What would they do now that their powerful enemies had their sights set on them? When we left off, Peter and John had narrowly avoided execution or imprisonment. They'd only spent a night in jail, not two and a half years like Withold did. But walking out of the court that day, it was obvious that all of this wasn't over. It was just the beginning of persecution, of opposition, of a new phase of church life. When they got back home, we don't see them celebrating that they had somehow dodged a legal bullet. We don't see them preparing a countersuit for having their rights infringed. We don't see them trying to leverage their 15 minutes of fame there. Instead, they simply gather with the church, report what happened, and go to prayer. And there they ask God to not only help them, but to actively send them back out into enemy territory on what must have felt like a suicide mission from one perspective. Because they were going to head right back out to do what they had been doing just the day before, not covertly, but openly, despite the dangers that lay ahead. Remarkably, in our text, there wasn't just one volunteer, but thousands who were of one mind and heart, who all asked God to make the extraordinary ordinary for all of them. And we will see that the Lord was happy to oblige these willing volunteers. We get a look at this dramatic prayer meeting starting in verse 23, where we read this. After they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. What a great descriptor of the group, the church that they were a part of. Luke calls them their own people. The way God has organized Christians is a wonderful thing. You know, we're not just a crowd. Uh, We're not just fellow shareholders in some company or corporation. No, we're put together as a family. Peter and John didn't go looking for other fishermen that day. They didn't go looking for other Galileans that day. These people who will understand me. No, they went to their Christian brothers and sisters. Those were their people. 
And many of them, they'd only known a few days or maybe a few weeks at most. But they understood that God had made them a family unit together. Now, of course, back then, there was only one church in the world. It was there in Jerusalem. It's kind of an amazing thing to think about. There's only one church in the entire world in the city of Jerusalem. Now, today, even a small town like Hanford has many different potential options of where one could theoretically be in a community with other Christians, right? So what church do you go to? You need to go to a church, and you're here, so you're doing a great job. But as a Christian, let's say you uh, have to move out somewhere or you get sent somewhere or whatever, you have to go to church somewhere. Well, what church do I go to? There's more than one church per city. There's dozens of churches per city. Probably not dozens of good churches per city, but there's lots of options. So what do we do? While we share a universal brotherhood in general, God's plan is that you actually personally be connected to a certain local church, one that he has in mind for you and your family. The New Testament talks about us as Christians being knitted together, that we fit together perfectly, that God makes that happen. As a living stone, it follows that you are meant to be mortared next to specific other living stones in God's building. And so to that end, we each want to be sure that we're part of a local fellowship and part of the local fellowship that God has for us. And so all of that to say, we as Christian individuals should let God decide what church we go to, right? And, and we should not make the decision ourselves based on things like likes or dislikes or certain styles or programs. When you hear a, a Christian friend or family member, you know, hey, you moved to this new place, did you find a church yet? Well, we tried a few. I don't really like the worship at this place. And yeah, this guy over here, whatever, it's a certain size and... You know, quite frankly, that's the wrong attitude. The attitude should be, where does God want to connect me? There's some living stones that God wants to mortar you up next to, and, and he will reveal that to us as we seek him. And so go to your people, find your people, uh, and all Christians are our people, but in this uh, wonderful world that is full of churches and full of the gospel... We want the Lord to direct us to the particular people and the particular local fellowship he wants us to be a part of. Verse 24 says, when they heard this, they all raised their voices to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. The situation had been made clear to the group to continue as a church member meant to be a lawbreaker as far as the Sanhedrin was concerned. Now, so far... The threats from the Jewish ruling establishment had been pretty toothless. But in just a few verses, that's all going to change. The claws are going to come out in a really dramatic way. But so, you know, being a church member, being a part of this family was, as far as the Sanhedrin was concerned, being a lawbreaker. Because Peter and John had said, hey, we are not going to stop preaching about Jesus Christ. Now, the church, their first response was to pray, not fearfully, but confidently. And throughout this little prayer, we'll see no knocking of the knees, just a bowing of the knee to their God and Father, who they address at the start here as master. It's a strong word. It's the word we get the term despot from, one who possesses supreme authority. The prayer as a whole acknowledges God's absolute supremacy. He's sup supreme over all of creation. He's supreme over the flow of history. And they, in their freedom, choose to give him supremacy over their own lives. We'll talk a little bit more about the freedom God has given us in a moment. 
Verse 25, you said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers assembled together against the Lord and against his Messiah. We've already seen in the book that the early church was full of the Psalms. They keep cropping up in sermons, now in their prayers as well. Here we have the opening lines of Psalm number two, which was and is prophetic concerning the Messiah and his ultimate establishment of a kingdom on the earth after the great tribulation. But the church here recognized that David's words also had an application to what was going on at the moment in their experience. You know, we talk about how Bible prophecy uh, we are, you know, we interpret Bible prophecy literally. We are futurists or look forward to the actual uh, corresponding reality of these prophecies being fulfilled in our midst and in the future, especially in the end times. There's lots and lots of Bible prophecies dealing with uh, God's dealing for the end times. But we talk also about how Bible prophecy can often have multiple phases of application. We talked about this a little bit when we were going through the book of Daniel, if you recall. Sometimes when it comes to a prophecy like this one, there was an immediate application, which had something to do with David's reign. We had, we're not exactly sure what. Then there was the partial fulfillment, identified here in Acts chapter 4, where under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the church is saying, hey, this applies to what's going on in our lives. And then there is the ultimate fulfillment, which will take place after Armageddon. Not every prophecy works that way, but sometimes they do, particularly when it seems when it comes to end times prophecies. Uh, we saw this already earlier in the book of Acts when Peter's talking about the prophecies of Joel. And, you know, Joel had made that prophecy. Peter says, hey, there's a, you know, we are recognizing a fulfillment there. We see it as a partial fulfillment of what Joel had talked about. And we looked at how, okay, there's still an ultimate fulfillment, clearly, that we are waiting for dealing with the end times. What was happening to the church was a specific fulfillment of Psalm 2, but the scene here of how they approach the scripture and how they apply it to themselves also helps us to recognize uh, the importance of having a biblical worldview. The way we look at things, the way we interpret things, the way we think about things, we want to have a biblical worldview. Not just in general, but when it comes to your life and your circumstances, what does the Bible say about your life and your circumstances? We can trust God's word to help adjust our perspective so that we are looking at things spiritually with the proper heavenly perspective according to the truth that God has revealed. A lot of us in here are glasses wearers, right? And in that sense, we need corrective lenses to help adjust our vision. And the same idea. And we come to the Lord, the God says, hey, here's my word, I've revealed it to you to give you truth so that you can understand what's going on and so that you can have proper vision, proper understanding for your life and for my plan and all of that sort of thing. And so it is a corrective lens for us that helps us to see more clearly. Now, of course, we're not always going to be able to find a chapter and verse that deals specifically with every situation you find yourself in. But God's word contains everything we need for life and godliness. We are supposed to use the scriptures as a light and as a lamp, right? And we are supposed to use the scriptures to understand what is going on in our lives and in the world around us. You see things going on in your own life that trouble you or things going on in your you know, nation or your state or whatever, things that trouble you, things that confuse you or things that are just happening to you and say, okay, 
what does the Bible, how does the Bible inform me about what's really going on here? That's the idea. The Christians in Acts used the Bible as the lens through which they viewed life. What does God have to say about these circumstances? They didn't go the other way around and reinterpret the scriptures according to their own culture or according to their own desires or anything like that. And this is always a tendency uh, that that human beings can kind of fall into. You see it sometimes in what we would call the liberal church, where they say, okay, let's let the culture reinterpret the scriptures and, and change the plain meaning of the scriptures and sort of get rid of those scriptures that are inconvenient or uncomfortable or not politically correct and those sorts of things. Let's put a lens onto the Bible as opposed to the other way around and say, let's take a look at life through the lamp and the light of God's word. That's the idea. Instead, when this thing happened with the Sanhedrin, it's as if the church here says, huh, what has God revealed in the Bible that explains what we should think about this situation and then what we should do about it? Very simple. And because that was their approach, they knew that this run-in with the Sanhedrin wasn't just some misunderstanding, and it wasn't something that was just going to blow over in a day or two. It wasn't just something that was no big deal. They understood by the word of God that this was part of the furious war that the unbelieving world was waging against God. And that would inform them concerning how they should react and respond and what they should expect to be coming. They took a you know, Peter and John came and reported, hey, here's what happened, and they thought, huh, what might be really going on? And the Holy Spirit ministered to them and brought the scripture to them, and they said, okay, wow, this is not just a small thing. This is not just some misunderstanding. This is a big deal. And there's a big difference between what David said in Psalm 2 and just sort of a clerical misunderstanding that they had with the Sanhedrin. Obviously, their, uh, you know, their mentality and their planning and what they should expect was going to be completely different, right, based upon God saying, actually, this is part of the raging war that opponents of God have been waging against the Christ and his people. Verse 27 says this, for in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. The entire world here is represented as these believers had come together as an assembly who love and serve Jesus Christ. This other much larger and in one sense more powerful assembly had come together in violent opposition against him. The Christians knew that the pressures and difficulties they were being faced with were not really about them, right? They were about Jesus. And so their response was not to defend themselves, but to just serve their king. They thought, okay, this is a spiritual thing that's going on. This isn't really about Peter and John. This is about Jesus Christ. And so my response needs to not be selfish or self-oriented. I need to respond like a servant of my king. Verse 28 says this, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Okay, does this verse teach that God has meticulously determined every action, event, and movement of each molecule in his universe throughout history? Or using our text here in the context that we're reading, did God force Herod, Pilate, and the others to do the things that they did in regard to Jesus Christ? Is that what the church meant when they talked about predestination? Did they just say that God used these individuals against any sort of idea of free will as pawns in his hands to accomplish the crucifixion? 
Christians divide over the issue of predestination and sovereignty and the way that they approach it. But the implications of our view of these doctrines are really significant. Where you land in regard to God's sovereignty and man's free will and the way that God accomplishes his purposes actually does make a difference in the way that you think about God, the way you present God to others, and I would argue the way you ultimately live out your Christianity. On the one extreme, you have those who believe in what is called meticulous determinism. It is what it sounds like, that God meticulously determines every single event that has ever taken place. That yes, God does not only allow, but he causes all things to happen throughout history, be they good or bad from our perspective. Of course, the problem here is that God must, by default, then be the author of evil. There's no way around it. If God is meticulously determined every action, every event, everything that's ever happened in human history, well, then God is the author of evil, not just original evil in the garden, but all of the evil that takes place still today. That's a real problem. And if this is your understanding of sovereignty, one wonders why you would worship such a God. But even beyond that, on a smaller level, one wonders what purpose there would be in praying, in evangelizing, in seeking the Lord. If we're all just robots, automatons in the hands of a God who does whatever he wants for his own glory, quote unquote, what's the purpose of praying? Why are they having this prayer meeting? Why are you at church today? You know, what some would call meticulous determinism, I would just call fatalism. What point is there in anything? Because no matter what you do, if this is your view of sovereignty, God made you do it. And so if I just slept all day and never got out of bed again because what's the point of serving God? Well, then God made me do it. I joke around with some of my Calvinist buddies that, you know, often those who are in the uh, more Reformed tradition or a more Calvinistic tradition, they will believe in determinism to one level or, an- or another. And, you know, we're friends and that's fine. That's all great. And I'll joke with them sometimes if we ever, if this issue ever comes up and I say, well, your sovereign God forced me to believe what I believe. I'm so sorry. There's nothing I can do about it. And we laugh, but it's true, right? And more importantly, if, if meticulous determinism is true, then not only has God forced me not to acknowledge meticulous determinism, more importantly, he has forced all of those who do not believe to not believe and not allowed them a free chance to accept salvation. That's a pretty big problem. On the other hand, there are those who believe that God has no such meticulous control, but instead he has given so much freedom to the universe that the future is actually undetermined. God is simply responding to choices that we make. It's called open theism. Of course, the problem with this view is that God cannot therefore truly be omnipotent or all-knowing. And it's difficult to make a case that he is truly sovereign under open theism. If this is your understanding, it's hard to trust that God can do any of the things that he's promised. How could God tell the future if the future is actually undetermined and he's just responding to what human beings have done? It makes his prophetic pronouncements highly suspect. It makes the infallibility of the scriptures logically impossible, right? So that's a problem. There is a third way, one which doesn't discount scriptures like Acts 4.28, which declare God's sovereignty, nor does it jettison all of those passages which clearly reveal the free will God has given to mankind, starting in the book of Genesis, running all the way through to the book of Revelation. 
Rather, this third way acknowledges that God is in charge of this universe and all of history. He is absolutely all-powerful. He is absolutely omnipotent, absolutely all-knowing. He is sovereign. But as Dr. Roger Olson says, God is sovereign over his sovereignty. That makes sense, right? God is so powerful, so sovereign, he can be sovereign over his sovereignty. Because the Bible reveals that there are other variables that are true when it comes to God's sovereignty and the accomplishing of his will on the earth. I'll list three that come to mind. First, he has given mankind a free will, and it is genuinely free. You really can't come to a different conclusion if you're just reading the Bible at face value, where God is constantly presenting people with choices, with options, with opportunities. A really great example is when Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. He says, I wanted you to do this and you would not. Well, if mankind does not have a genuinely free will, what is Jesus saying there? He's certainly being at best deceptive to us, the readers, right? If he really means what I really mean was I forced you not to believe. That doesn't connect at all. And so God has given mankind a free will and it is genuinely free. That is a factor in God's sovereignty. Second, God has decided to include us in the accomplishing of his will as instruments and participants, even sometimes as collaborators, not just an instrument in his hands, but, some, but we'll see in the scriptures, he sometimes gives his people the option to make decisions about his will. Third, God allows himself to be impacted by our choices and behaviors, not changed, but impacted. If that sounds strange, consider passages like Isaiah 63 and Ephesians 4, which says that you can grieve the Holy Spirit. So on a very basic level, the Bible says outright, hey, you can impact the emotions of God through your behavior and through your choices. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. Consider stories like the wilderness wanderings of Israel, where God's will was impacted for 40 years. God said, let's go into the land. The people said, no thanks. And he said, okay, I guess we'll sit around for 40 years. God's offer to them to enter the land was genuine. And they said no. And so his plan, his timetable was impacted for 40 years. That doesn't mean God isn't sovereign, but it it means that he has allowed us to impact him and his will from time to time. Consider the fact that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, will live forever in a glorified body as the God-man bearing the scars of the crucifixion. That's a pretty big impact, an impact of our sin, that the second person of the Trinity became incarnate and now bears the marks of the crucifixion. And so clearly God allows himself to be impacted by mankind in different ways. Consider, uh, or concerning our participation in God's work, consider the way in both Testaments where God allows men to collaborate with him in his work. We think of that scene where Abraham bartered with God concerning Sodom. He says, here's what I'm going to do. And Abraham said, well, what if you did this? And the Lord talked with him and he said, okay, let's go with that. Jesus told his disciples, he says, okay, you guys are going to go out, you're going to do ministry. If you want to give blessing, good. If you want to withhold blessing, that's fine too. And he told them later, hey, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. The building of the permanent temple was man's idea, not God's idea. David said, I want to build God a temple. And the Lord came to him and said, I never asked for a temple, but okay, your son can build a temple. And then 
Think of all of things that surrounded the worship in the temple and God's presence in the temple and all these things. And so God allows us to cooperate and even collaborate with him in the accomplishment of his will. This freedom God has given does not allow for the possibility that God will not accomplish his will. There's no chance that God's not going to get done what he says he's going to get done. There's no chance that God is going to accidentally not accomplish his will. God is in charge, and what he has said will happen will happen. Esther is the clearest biblical example of this. Mordecai comes and tells her this. He says, if you keep silent at this time, liberation and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. To me, that scene is the perfect example of biblical sovereignty, that God says, this is going to happen. I'd like you to be a part of it. If you refuse to be a part of it, I've given you the freedom to choose. But this is going to get done. And I am so powerful, I can allow for you to choose right now, yes or no. It's an amazing thing. God's will would be done. One theologian puts it this way, the plan of God is predetermined, but the way in which he realizes it is dependent partly on the free cooperation of his subjects. This does not detract from his omnipotence, for it means that he is so powerful that he is willing to attain his objectives by allowing a certain room for freedom of action on the part of man. Verse 29 says, and now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your message with complete boldness. Warren Wearsby points out that they prayed for power, not protection. They prayed for enablement, not escape. They encourage themselves here by remembering God is all-powerful and that he has a perfect, loving plan for them. In that plan, they saw themselves as slaves. Just as the word for master was a strong word, the word they use for slave here is a strong word. Uh, if your translation says servant there, Bible scholars will say, hey, the word is actually slave. It's the stronger Greek word for it. It's a word that stresses dependence on the master and being compelled to serve him. But they were not captured or stolen away by God in the way that we think of modern slavery. Rather, they volunteered to bind themselves to him. They volunteered to come and say, I want to be a bond servant, bound to this master. It's a great contrast uh, to what we are told the raging nations say. In Psalm 2, they say this in verse 3, let us tear off the chains of the Lord and his anointed one and free ourselves from their restraints. They're doing whatever they can to get free from being bound to the Lord. That's the verse that comes directly after the ones that the church quoted earlier. And the church comes and says, no, not us. I want to be bound to the Lord. I want to be bound to his will. I want to be a slave to him. They knew, these are the apostles. They knew that Jesus said, hey, no longer do I call you slaves. I'm calling you friends. You're my sons. You're my daughters. And, and so they're not saying that there wasn't that fatherly relationship with the Lord, but they're saying, Lord, you know, I want to live in such a way that I am a slave to your will, compelled to serve you, that you're my ultimate supreme master, and that I'm completely surrendered in such a way. Verse 29, uh, sorry, verse, I'm lost here. Here we go. One, two, three, four, five. Okay, so these volunteers, slaves, ask their master for something, and it, that is complete boldness. 
The term there means assurance and outspokenness, but ironically, it also means freedom of speech. So these slaves asked the Lord to empower them to speak freely the message that they had received. That's the kind of God we have, one who gives trust and freedom to his slaves, one who gives individuals who he blood-bought the option of whether they will faithfully serve him or not, of whether they will proclaim his message or not. We belong to the Lord as Christians, right? He blood-bought us. And even though we are slaves in that sense, he says, now I'm going to give you the option whether you want to speak freely, whether you want to faithfully serve or not. And these Christians here, they said, yes. Will we volunteer to step into his will and into the mission of mercy he's called us to be a part of? This church said, yes. I want to be the kind of Christian that says yes too. Verse 30, while you stretch out your hand for healing, signs, and wonders to be performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This verse encouraged me to pray big prayers and to not stop praying big prayers. R.A. Torrey once said this, pray for great things, expect great things, work for great things, but above all, pray. The God of the Bible is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same as the God in the Old Testament, the same as the God in Acts. And while he does not always respond miraculously, he still can and he still does. Don't let anyone tell you different. And so let's make it a habit of praying for big things while making ourselves available to whatever part he might want us to play. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak God's message with boldness. They were filled again. We've noticed before that the Christians in Acts apparently leaked when it came to the Holy Spirit, and therefore they were filled anew multiple times. This won't be the last. We're told in the New Testament to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a command given to us. We don't want to consider our communion with God as a one and done thing, but we're to continually pursue that nearness and that filling and that relationship day by day. What I love about this verse is that not only did God respond, he immediately set them to doing the thing which they asked about. They said, Lord, please let us speak with boldness. And as verse 31 ends, it's, God says, okay, why don't we start right now? It says they just began proclaiming the message with boldness. And they began to speak his message, the message of the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. Peter and John's ordeal with the Sanhedrin hadn't scared the Christians off. Rather, it stirred them up to re recommit themselves to the work God had set before them. It's similar to what Paul would later write in Philippians 1.14, where he says, most of the brothers in the Lord have gained confidence from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the message fearlessly. The church understood that they were part of a necessary mission, the work of God, and that they, as individuals, had the chance to volunteer to join in, not joining a fight, but joining a rescue mission. Like Witzold Pilecki, their objective wasn't to go in and kill their enemies, but to bring captives out alive, right? Remarkably, even in Psalm 2, that prophetic messianic psalm talking about the rage of the nations and the conquering victory of the anointed one, even that psalm, the song ends with a plea that the kings of the earth would turn to the Lord and serve him so that they wouldn't perish, even these peoples and nations and kings where it's revealed they have such violent hatred for God. The psalm ends explaining to them how they can take refuge in the sun and find joy and blessing and happiness. That's the message. 
the church realized that they were being sent with that same message to the kings and peoples who were coming against them. Centuries before, the Holy Spirit had spoken through God's servant David. Here in Acts 4, the Holy Spirit was speaking through God's sons and daughters in Jerusalem, and the same message of salvation is now given to us. We're the ones who have volunteered for the Lord's service. And now we can choose to step into this dramatic mission of mercy. As we do, we'll need God's supernatural enabling. We cannot live the Christian life without the filling of the Holy Spirit. But with it, we can live with understanding, we can live without fear, and we too can be sources of inexplicable heavenly good in a time of inexplicable evil. May God give us the heart and the fortitude and the filling and the opportunity to do it. Let's pray and then we'll sing.